Well, hello there. I'm Karen Sander. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly, a program for the over 50s, those uniquely wonderful baby boomers. My aim is to educate, motivate and inspire you to embrace the exciting journey of life for decades to come. So stay tuned to meet a variety of guests who will share their stories and passions to help us gain insight into the ways to live a happier, healthier life. Well, hello everyone. I'm Karen Sander. I am really fortunate because I get to speak to some very, very interesting people and many of you would know that I'm a swimmer and I was recently introduced to someone who loves the water but in a very different way to me. He is a diver, he is Italian and he lives here in Australia now and his name is Marco and it's a very sexy surname, Bordieri. <laughs> Am I correct, Marco? Sounds good. Sounds good. Do I make it sound good enough? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Perfect. <laughs> so, Marco, welcome to the show today. My pleasure, Kevin. So, recently I had a chance to talk to Marco because he came along to my story room event and he came in his diving outfit, which was really, really special. But what I want to find out is more about Marco. So, Marco, tell us about you. Ah, it's a pleasure to be here. Um so I was born in the 60s in um, Milan, Italy, and, um, you know, the capital fashion. Not that I care too much about fashion, actually. I really enjoy to be, you know, wearing shorts and T-shirts and thongs here in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> fashion and art, really? Yes. 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 Very, it's a beautiful city. I do like art, but, uh, yeah, not too much into fashion. <laughs> and, uh, I was born in the 60s, and those were interesting times in Europe and in Italy because... Probably it was quite different in Australia. So we had a lot of politics over there. And um, most of the countries had the problem with uh, terrorism, you know, like Italy, France, Spain, Germany. And uh, there was a lot of uh, polarization. So as a kid, everybody was either on the left or on the right. You couldn't stand in the middle because the middle was if you didn't have the guts to, to take a stand. On the fence. On the fence, yeah. So there was a lot of polarization. And I remember when I was 12, the prime minister was kidnapped and was held in captivity for two months. And there were all these pictures and letters that they were sent to the to the press. And eventually was put in a car and killed. So, this was in the 70s. Yes, yeah. that was when I was 12 years old. And um, yeah, so every every other day there was something happening. But likely in my family, there wasn't too much uh, politics going on. I mean, my father wouldn't talk much about politics. And I think that was a good thing because there was already too much happening on, on TV. And my father was kind of a special character. So, um, for example, I remember we had a TV, like a TV set, like everybody. And I remember the day he came with this uh, color TV from the black and white. But uh, differently from my, my, my other friends, we wouldn't spend too much time watching TV because my father didn't want us to watch TV. So it was kind of, I say, why do you buy TV? <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> why did he buy that TV? <laughs> yeah, he, he didn't want, and that was quite forward looking. If I think that, you know, um, watching too much TV nowadays probably is not a good thing. And I, I rarely uh, turn it on. So uh, another characteristic, one day he came home with a monkey. Now, if you think uh, that Milan is like the city in Sydney, so it's kind of a highly urbanized, he came home with his monkey as a pet. 
<laughs> so we, everybody has a cat or a dog. and uh, You have a monkey. We have a monkey. Now, I don't want to make comparison with uh, cats and dogs because people will get uh, unsettled, but uh, it was really an interesting experience. It's very, very, very smart. And that was one of the, of the things that definitely uh, set a little bit of apart. And we were a, a middle-class family, so we're not rich, we're not poor, but we were in the condition that just with one salary, my father was working in a bank, my mother was a housewife, so with just one salary we could raise the kids and uh, have a property home and uh, uh, go on holidays, uh, own a sailing boat and also put some money aside. So really different times. And one thing I remember, he was always going to work in the morning. He would catch a tram to go to work. He would, go, he would work till midday and then he would come back home for lunch, so another tram to come back home. At lunch, and then he would sleep half an hour, <laughs> and then you know the siesta is people call it in in Spain, in Spain. and then we catch another tram. He will go back to the office, and and all, all this all totally suited with his uh, tie and suit and everything, and uh, yeah. So I can't even think today to go sleeping half an hour in the afternoon where I just wouldn't be. Even if I had the time, I would never sleep. I, I can't see how it would be possible. How far was the tram ride that your dad took? I think it was about 20, 25 minutes. So I don't know, maybe actually work like three, four hours every day. <laughs> if I take it. Because by five o'clock it was done and he was free to go in his shops and look around and come back with something odd. It's a, it's a very different life, the European life, especially then to now. I mean, I don't know Absolutely. in Spain is the siesta still a big part of their life. When I was certainly working over there, it was a huge part of their life and you know, you're saying the same was in Milan with your dad. And you, for your career, how long were you in Italy? Uh, I was in Italy till nine years ago. So I did my uh, graduation and then I ended up in IT, corporate IT, because that was the thing in the 90s. I did economics, but then, uh, you know, you, you could tell that IT was the future. And I, I entered that world uh, 25 years ago and I'm still there and it is what it is, pros and cons of working for a, a big organisation. You have been a real adventurer through your life and I love it when people talk about all the different things they've experienced. What are some of the things that you've tried, sporting and adventure? <laughs> well, probably the first one was when I was 17. So my father retired. He was able to retire at uh, 52 years old. So again, <laughs> he was a young one. Yes. And um, he basically took the family for 15 months on a sailing trip. So mm -hmm. we had this uh, sailing boat and uh, we went from Italy to the Caribbean, the Americas, and then back. And that was a real experience. Um, even though I never fell in love with sailing, um, I've been spending one month of my life since I was born on a sailing boat because it would take the family one month every, every summer. And uh, I would rather, actually, that age, I would rather spend the time with my friends on the beach than going on a sailing boat. You know, when you're young, you like uh, speed and um, something exciting, and sailing is not exactly that because uh, it's slow. I was looking at all the, you know, the speedboat um, going over, and, um, yeah, I just was, I wish I was on a speedboat rather than a sailing boat. And also was very interested in, um, in what was happening under the water. I found it being out of the water, outside the water, a bit boring. And also because it was kind of something that was forced on me because I didn't have the option to choose it. So I, I never fell in love with sailing, even though I spent so much time every year and then this 15-month uh, cruise. But I really was curious about what was happening underwater. 
one thing that probably planted the seed of um, kind of a looking for adventures was the freedom that you experience on, on a sailing boat. Because you decide your destination, you set your destination, and the way you get to that destination is up to you. So differently from a, a road trip on, on, this, on the road, you have to pick your uh, destination, you have to pick your, uh, the, the street, the route that you're taking, and there are limited options, and you end up queuing behind other cars. So in the water, you set your destination, and then you just go in, you, never, you, you rarely find anyone else. So it's really the freedom of choosing where to go and uh, in which way that's probably planted the seed of, uh, of being a little bit adventurous. So definitely there was sailing. That was uh, my, my first uh, kind of adventure. And then when I was in my 40s, I started running. And that's to me is a real adventure because I, I didn't think I would like it, but a friend me took into running and I ended up running a number of marathons and 100K. And that's an adventure in yourself because um, I thought it was Running was very, uh, you know, just boring because from outside you see people just repeating the same act for hours. In reality, when you're running, you have a lot of uh, feelings and uh, sensation from, from your body. And even in, the, in a marathon, which lasts, uh, you know, between three and five hours, you experience a full range of uh, emotions. You feel a pain, pain, I have a problem, I'm going to stop, and then the pain goes away. No, I'm going to do it. And so it's, it's a full range of uh, ever-changing emotions. And that was definitely something uh, exciting. It's exciting the first time I finished a marathon. It took like four, five hours. But I cried because, you know, it's the first time in your life that you do a marathon. And then it was a matter of being faster. So four hours, three hours and 40, I think, was my best time. I, I get easily bored. So I need a, a moving target. Uh, the target was doing a marathon. And then it was being faster and faster. And then you reach the point that you have uh, diminishing returns. Then being five minutes faster will take six months of preparation to be five minutes over three hours, which doesn't really matter a lot. And then skydiving. Yeah, so as part of this uh, search for the next emotion, I, I did skydiving. Back when I was in the 20s, I did a training and a course and I did a few jumps. But each time I was so scared and, uh, and I was so happy after the jump. Uh, but I never knew what it was because I really enjoyed flying or because uh, kind of a Russian roulette when you realize that you... Were these single you only jumps then you're not strapped to someone else no no it was a proper uh, skydiving course so I'm, i was going by myself and uh, i say the, the the relief and the happiness after the jump i think was more related to have, be, have survived more than anything so i said well i rather playing a russian roulette if i want to, to have the same feeling rather than you so i stopped and then when i was 50 and my partner was expecting my third child I, for some reason, I just want to go back to the same point where I left and I did another course because the one I took was not valid anymore. So again, I started the cycle again. I did a course and I did a few jumps by myself, but I realized I wasn't that good in landings and I almost broke my legs. So I decided <laughs> probably I, it, it wouldn't be the case of spending the rest of my life on a wheelchair just because I wanted to try at 50 to try again skydiving. So that, um, that, that was the end of it. I've jumped out of a plane once yeah. and I was strapped to someone. I did it with a friend of yours, Lainey, and I loved it, but I found I got quite motion sick on the way down. I said to the the guy I was strapped to, if if I throw up now, are we both going to wear it? And he went, yep. <laughs> I went. <laughs> yeah, I, the wind will just blow me oh, both faces. Yeah, yeah. anyway. <laughs> I want it. So I think that Australia is very, very lucky to have you here. 
after your globe-trotting years. Why Australia? At some point in life, I was at a friend's house in New York and they moved from Italy to New York. And uh, I had this illumination and I said, maybe what I'm looking for is uh, to relocate. Because when you relocate, you you press reset on everything. You have to learn all, all of a sudden everything from scratch. Yeah. So I was looking for a, a, a big country where I could uh, do the type of work that I was doing. And there were English-speaking countries. So, And the only country, the big one that I wasn't, where I haven't been that, at that stage was Australia. So I said, probably, you know, would be an adventure in the adventure if I relocate to a country I know nothing about. So that's why I moved to Australia. Then one thing is to decide and one thing is actually to do it because you have to fit a lot of things, right? You have to find a job, you have to uh, get things organized. I remember another option was Singapore. I was offered a job in Singapore. But to me, that was kind of a, kind of a plugged into a machine. You become a worker in, a, in an organization in a city that is also a country. And I would never fit into that. I'd rather have a kind of a, an endless landscape like in Australia where I could explore and go around than being confined to a city where everything is perfect and is provided to your needs. But that absolutely wouldn't fit my needs. Yeah, you're a bit of a free spirit. Yes, and, <laughs> restless maybe. And I think that Singapore would have been like putting you in a cage. Like a jail, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it would. Uh, the first song you chose is Maybe Tomorrow by the Stereophonics. Why did you choose Maybe Tomorrow? I like the music, but I like the, the concept of um, the, the word says, maybe tomorrow I will find my way home. And uh, the reality is that when I sing it in my car, <laughs> without witnesses, um, <laughs> I usually sing, uh, maybe tomorrow I will find my way. And I stop there. Because going home sometimes wasn't my goal. And sometimes I took the long way home because I wasn't feeling like going home at all. So, um, yeah, one day I will find my way. That's my hope. Well, this is Maybe Tomorrow by the Stereophonics. You are listening to Radio Northern Beaches 88.7 and 90.3, your community radio station. This is the Aging Fearlessly program, and today my guest is Marco Bordieri. He is of Italian background and living here in Australia, and he is very, very passionate about diving and everything underwater. So, Marco, we've just been talking about your early life and what brought you to Australia. But you love diving, you love the ocean, and you love nature. When did you start diving and what is it you love about it? I started when I was probably 10, as soon as I could swim and wear a mask. I remember it was uh, free diving and snorkeling and free diving where near the, the beach where we used to go in Italy. And um, what I love, it's... Uh, um, I've been thinking about that a number of times, especially in comparison with my father and the passion for um, sailing that he had, and all the time I've been spending sailing with him. And um, I think there is something in common, and is, as I say, the, the freedom of uh, moving into an element, choosing your own path without having to queue behind other people and negotiate your way. So that's definitely something in common, but there are also big differences so diving, you are in a 3D space, so you don't just move along the surface, but you can choose your, your depth, so you, you can move, move vertically, and um, you have this feeling of uh, being weightless, because you float, you fly, right, it's as close as you get to, to flying, 
And uh, also you, you breathe underwater, which is still amazed me after so many years. You are, I am underwater and I'm breathing like if I was outside of the water. And um, also the, the other bit compared to sailing where basically you know where you're going and uh, you know, there are not many things that may happen at any given moment. When you dive, you never, see, you, ne- you never know what you're going to see because, uh, you know, you turn the corner and it could be, I don't know, a turtle, a dolphin, a shark. could be your last day in the water if you are unlucky. And uh, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm positive, so I'm sure it will never happen. But uh, it's really unpredictable. Or you may find a, a species that has been brought here by the East Australian current, so a tropical species that shouldn't be here, but you find it because of the climate change. And then you take a picture, and then uh, all the researchers ask you about that, and they want to take to understand where the, you know, the extension of range of that fish. Well, one week ago, I found a coral that in the arbor that was for the first time was found in the arbor, and that's uh, something that is changing over time. It's, uh, it's the result of increasing temperatures in the water. Or I found an anchor the other day, an admiralty anchor that was probably 200 years old, and I sent it to the Heritage Office with all the picture and the location. Or I found a, a bottle made of clay. There was a, a ginger bottle uh, the other day that uh, is dated uh, 19, uh, beginning of, of 900 and has been underwater. Somebody threw it overboard after drinking, you know, 120 years ago. And uh, I, I, it was there and I picked it home. I picked and I brought it home. And uh, it's beautiful. It's old. It's damaged. And these type of adventures. Where did you find that? Uh, I like... Uh, you probably may have guessed by now, I like to go where, off the beaten track when I go diving. So instead of going the same place, I have a sea scooter, which is like a torpedo, which may take me um, like 200, uh, sorry, two kilometers away from where I start and back. So I can explore places where people normally don't go because it's too far for swimming. And this is what I love, uh, you know, finding uh, could be an anchor, could be a, an old bottle or a, a fish that uh, nobody has seen in that area before. Well, it's interesting. You go to Bear Island sometimes? I do. That's one of my sites. And um, actually, I've been spending, I think, 25 dives doing a mapping project. Uh, Well, just off the, you know, this is just trivia. I grew up at La Perouse and Bear Island was a place where we used to go and play hide and seek. (laughs) And in the 60s, a whale actually was beached on on the rocks, when you're looking at the island where yeah, the bridge yeah. goes, it was on the on the left hand yeah. side. It it died there, but you know, oh. yeah, it. You can look it up. Go to my <laughs> friend really? Google and look it up. But there you go. Um, it was a wonderful area to grow up, and uh, very barren in those days. Um, very new community down there, and, and we moved there in 1960 when I was four years of age. So yeah, you can all guess how old I am now. <laughs> but yeah, a, a wonderful place to grow up. But I have been following you on Instagram and admiring some of the photographs from under the surface of the ocean. But how did you get to be so good at underwater photography? And is it difficult to learn? And a, and a third question, what do you hope to achieve sharing these photos? Well, you think you are good till uh, you get on social media and you see other people doing better <laughs> pictures. So <laughs> I'm satisfied, but definitely there are better photographers. Uh, for me, photography started um, probably when I was 10, 10, 12, since where everything started in my life. I remember my father uh, gave me a, a camera, it was a, a Russian camera, very basic, very, very manual, basically that uh, three settings for the light. There was like the, 
the, the sunlight, there was the, um, uh, the cloudy sky, and then there was the, the raining sky. So it got very, very basic. But I remember going around the, you know, around my area in Milan, taking pictures, and then developing the films with the help of my brother mm. and, and my father, and uh, printing. So we, we did the full uh, cycle of uh, taking pictures and printing them. And then when I started snorkeling and then diving, it uh, would have been just a dream to combine the two passions, to take pictures underwater. But uh, actually it wasn't feasible because back in the days the cameras were so expensive. There was this uh, line of, um, it's called uh, Nikonos cameras, that were waterproof cameras, were so expensive that I would never afford them. So um, later on, I, I basically started, with, like everybody, with a GoPro and taking some videos and pictures and then changing and changing. And then all of a sudden you find, uh, you know, something which is like $10,000 in your hands and you, you don't know how you get there. It's very easy to, to escalate and to buy accessories. And, um, and there is one main difference between uh, taking picture, pictures outside of the water and in the water. So outside of the water, you freeze a moment that you can... Uh, witness you can see but underwater especially if you go at night when, at night you have a torch and with your torch you you know you swing left and right and you 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 put the light in different position and you can see fragments of your surroundings because it's dark when you take a picture and you use um, the strobes or the flash you for a fraction of a second you get all the surroundings lit and you can um, for a second, well, much less than a second, you can see everything, and everything is kind of frozen. So you don't actually understand what you're doing. You take your picture, and then when you go home, you check the pictures, and you can see something that you weren't able to see underwater. It's an extension of your dive. It's an augmented reality. That's why when I go night diving, I always go home, even if it's midnight, I, I need to check my pictures, because otherwise it would be like uh, interrupting the dive if I didn't check my picture. So even if I end up at 2 o'clock in the morning, that's fine, because uh, in that picture you can see all the surroundings in true colors that are given by the, by, the, by the flesh. And you can see the details, you can see the fish that maybe was moving, and you can see you know, very detailed, you can check details that you wouldn't be able to, to see mm. otherwise. So it's really taking your dive to the next step and stopping your, your place at home at night, and you see, oh, this is the environment where I was immersed. Yeah. That's fascinating. I didn't really think about that you're doing night dives as well. I, I really just thought about day, but of course you can do night dives. Has it been difficult to learn the skill? Taking photography can be easy if you have like a GoPro, you just press a button. Uh, maybe more, more complicated if you are into very tiny things like macro photography. There are these uh, nudibranch that are very tiny sea slugs. In, in that case, you need uh, equipment and uh, a lot of practice. But uh, taking pictures, especially if you stay in, the sh in shallow waters, like the first five meters, you don't need lights. You just need a simple camera and the, all the picture looks great because... Uh, the light coming from the sky still uh, shows all the colors. The problem is when you go deeper and uh, everything becomes blue and you need lights and you need more technique. But taking pictures near the surface, it's very easy. So there are thousands, thousands, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of species underwater. Do you have any favorites? It's like asking my favorite child. <laughs> <laughs> Um, probably a couple of them have a special uh, place in my heart. One is the um, is an octopus, 
um, which we all love after having watched the octopus. The uh, teacher octopus. Yeah. My octop- teacher octopus. Yes. My, my octopus teacher. <laughs> That's it. Um, but this was a special one, and uh, it was a species that I didn't know. So one night I was diving in Manly on the on the arbor side, and I found this uh, different octopus that was different color and was sitting in the sand, while normally an octopus would be under a rock. And when I got closer, it got totally in the shape of um, of a pizza. I thought I, I thought I would call it the, the pizza octopus. <laughs> it, got, it became totally round and with all the arms bent in a way that was exactly like a pizza, almost the same shape and, uh, and size. And um, I later found out that was the um, it's called the Hammer octopus, which is a, a species that you can only find in this area near Sydney. Mm. It's Hammer because it has a special arm which is uh, specialized for mating. And, um, and also have this behavior. It sits on the sand. It, um, it, it simulates the color of the sand. And so it's a defense mechanism. It's basically to, to hide under the sand or to have the same color. Um, your other favorite? The other favorite is, uh, I know it's not a fish, it's a mammal, but it's the seal. Ah, uh, I saw one this week when I was saw- swimming, a pup. Yeah, sometimes they are quite rare, but uh, when it happens, it's a real experience. So I was diving in the Clifton Gardens in Mosman mm-hmm. and, um, the other day, and uh, I saw something black coming very quickly into my field of vision. And, uh, you know, at the very first moment, I was a bit scared because I couldn't understand what it was. <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> they, they really uh, jump on you. And um, when I realized it was a seal, it was just playful, cheap. She, well, I like to think she was a female, but um, she stayed with me for 10 minutes, and uh, they're like uh, dog puppies. They mm. come to you, they sniff you, and uh, the thing with the seals, when you see them out of the water, they really squeeze their eyes because their vision outside of the water is not very good. So in mm-hmm. order to be able to focus, they need to squeeze their eyes. So they always look like a little bit sleepy. But when they are underwater, they can open their eyes. And their eyes are the size of a golf ball. And they are totally rounded and uh, black. Mm. So you see these beautiful eyes. And you can only see them underwater. And they look at you and they're just so lovely. Well, I've fallen in love with the cuttlefish. And as you know, in Cabbage Tree Bay, there are so many of them. And just following them around and the shapes of their eyes and watching the colours that they change Absolutely. and the shape and not like their whole body changes and it'll become lumpy. I love the way they swim. I, I think it's like a Mexican wave. <laughs> it's just so Absolutely. rhythmic. And I love watching the little tentacles come out. And then if they take off, I think they can take off in both directions. They're so fast. Yeah, they can leave a cloud of uh, ink and just disappear. It's like... How did that happen? It's just gone. And uh, But, you know, I relate to when you say you saw something coming in the distance. I mean, it, and you think, what is it? Well, that was the little seal I saw the other day, but also a cormorant went under me. And you just go, oh, it, it's sort of momentarily you just, well, I just usually think the worst. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's just one of those things. You chose an, another song, The River, by Bruce Springsteen. Tell us about this song. In this case, probably it's not about the lyrics. Um, Bruce Springsteen sings about the underdog and the other side of America, so it doesn't really relate to me. I never felt like an underdog. 
but um, is a is a song that I listened to for the first time in the 21st of uh, June 1985. It was it was a concert, so it was one of my first concerts. It was at uh, the San Siro Stadium in in Milan, Italy, and uh, since then. Uh, because I liked uh, the boss, so-called the boss. I've been watching so many concerts, and last time he was in Australia, I actually went to five concerts in a row. I flew to Melbourne, I went twice in Sydney, and twice in Hunter Valley. This is all Bruce. Yeah, in the space of one week. Oh. And uh, but each concert is different. That's why. So yeah. And um, and I've been watching concert all, whenever I could. So each time I hear this song, it's like the, the soundtrack of my life. And every time I remember, okay, the first time I was, uh, you know, 19 and I was in this situation. And then I had a girlfriend and then I was by myself and then I relocated. So each time I hear the song, I, I kind of stop and think about my life. So that's why I think it's uh, important. So it brings up a lot of emotion. Absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful. Bruce Springsteen, The River. Welcome back to 88.7 and 90.3, your community radio station. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly with Karen. Please go to Facebook and like the page Aging Fearlessly. My guest today is Marco Bordieri and we're talking about diving and passion projects through his life, what, what's really led him to being where he is today? Marco, you started a community group and it is called VIZ, V-I-Z. Can you share what does VIZ mean and what is the mission of VIZ? Sure. So in the lingo of divers and snorkelers, um, when they ask how is the VIZ, they, they, they are asking how is the visibility, which is a key element. In it wasn't experience. good today, by the way. <laughs> good to know. You should write a report in the, in the group. <laughs> I will. <laughs> so um, the group started because when I came to Australia and came to Sydney, I wanted to check what uh, the, the place would offer from the underwater perspective. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, living in, in the West in Wright. So normally I would take my car and drive all the way to, you normally in Manly, some days were amazing, you know, we got 600 species. We got the largest, largest, a larger number of species in Sydney than the whole Mediterranean Sea. So there is a full variety thanks to the East Australian current and uh, a number of elements. But other days, visibility wasn't there, you couldn't see nothing. And um, I said, it uh, would be great if we have a way where divers could share the conditions, because you, the conditions cannot be predicted, but at least you can share the latest ones. So I created this group uh, called VIZ, as you said. It's a Facebook group and initially invited five, six people because uh, I was a total alien in the in the community, in the diving community. I was the last one arrived. I saw Wobbegong. I didn't know what it was. And for Jackson, <laughs> I, I see people talking about PJs and, and Wobbies and then I search on Google. Wobbies does not exist. So I was even in trouble. Or gym balls, you know. I was in trouble finding what the locals were talking about. So... I was literally the last one arrived and with very basic knowledge. So I started this group, I invited five, six, six people, but then the formula was so successful that within one year it became the largest marine enthusiast community in Australia, even though we are just focused on Sydney. So it's, we are um, proudly local. We only look at the conditions around Sydney, uh, Nelson Bay to Shell Harbour, I would say. 
but we are deeply local. We have a very high penetration across the community of divers and snorkelers. If you think 9,000 people, then that's the, the, the size of the community as mm. we speak. And we, we plan to be 10,000 10, by the end of the year. I dream of having that as my community. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, I did not start with the idea of uh, we'll be 10,000. I have no clue. I said, let's share something with my friends. And um, we ended up being a large community. And the, the mission originally was kind of, um, you know, selfish and uh, pragmatic and short-sighted. We just need to share conditions and that's it. But then uh, after one year during COVID, I found myself with a lot of time at home and I was scrolling this feed of this Facebook group and I saw so much information, so much value in the, in the post. People post about the visibility, but also they put videos and pictures and they mention what they've seen. And I thought, well, it's just a pity. Everything is just scrolling in the past. You know, Facebook, you know, after one day, everything is forgotten and goes somewhere down. So... I started scrolling and taking notes. Okay, we, somebody saw a turtle. Which turtle was that? Let's save the picture. Oh, somebody else saw another turtle. Is it the same? No, it's different. Okay, so let's say turtle number one and turtle number two. And then somebody saw a, a cuttlefish, the dimension. Okay, when was it during the year? Was it August? Was it December? So I started classifying those sightings and uh, eventually became a citizen science project where all this information are classified. I, we now know that there have been 53 turtles that came to our shores in the last two years. And some of them have been leaving and coming and leaving. They always come back in the same site. They never cross sites. So there is a lot of information that come out of this post. So people, they don't know, but they are part of the Citizens and Science mm. Project just by being in a group. And then the, the scope evolved and um, because of this access to this large community and this focus on uh, marine biologists and uh, kind of research, even if at amateurial level, um, that became also a platform for the marine biologist to tap into the public knowledge. Because, you know, a biologist is normally is not underwater, he's in, in the office and uh, they can't have eyes everywhere. Sometimes people see... Uh, a sea cauliflower, which is a protected species in a place where you know, nobody knew was there. Or I mentioned this coral, the Posilopora alice, which is a coral that has been found uh, Oceanside uh, four years ago and was found the other week in, for the first time in the arbor. So the biologists really need to tap into the public knowledge. Mm. There was an event where the weedy sea dragons, those beautiful uh, kind of a large-scale uh, seahorses mm -hmm. that uh, are along our coast, were washed uh, up on the coast because of the big swell in March and April. Uh, 120 were found dead on the coast, which is yeah, atrocious, tragic. tragic, and they are beautiful. But um, uh, our role that was to communicate, to, to ask our um, community members to, to report where they were found. So the, the scientists were able to track where they were found, and, uh, and also a number of specimens has been brought to the labs. What they do, they analyze the DNA of the specimen. They try to find out what's the reason of, uh, of, the, of, the, of their death, but also by looking at the difference or similarities in the DNA, they are able to identify whether the, com the community in the ocean is large or small. Mm. So the, the mission has evolved, was kind of a selfish and very basic mission, and then become also a mission of um, interacting with the biologists, but also to promote uh, marine life awareness to the general public. What we do, we, we browse, we collect the best news, the best uh, sightings, the best information that we find in a group, posted by people, 
and we bring them up to the general public. We have a segment on ABC Radio with Saturday morning with an audience of 160,000 people, listeners. And uh, we always, every time we choose a, a, a subject, so tomorrow I'm talking about the koala, last week it was about the algae or, you know, or of the Widdesee dragons. And um, we try to bring uh, the underwater news to the general public, especially the ones that are not divers. Because if you want to be an advocate, you need to be um, f- to have some familiarity. If, uh, mm-hmm. if I asked you, um, would you s- sign a petition for a marine park? And maybe you don't know, you're not a diver. You, you're, not, you're not experiencing the richness of life underwater. You may say, why should I say yes? But if uh, you've been listening to the radio and every week we talk about the species and then you become familiar, you realize how much is happening underwater. Maybe you may sign yes. Well, actually, I think that answers a question that I was going to ask about the important benefits of VIS. And I can see what you're doing as citizen scientists. And I love that, you know, people can can sort of say, I, I am a scientist in a way because I'm sharing what I'm finding. And people that aren't familiar with the ocean um, learn more and can appreciate the marine life, correct? Absolutely. That, that's the goal. You don't... You don't enroll into a, being a citizen science, but by being part of the group, if you're active and you post, you are already contributing to citizen science. If you don't post anything, that's equally fine, And but you are learning every day. So without knowing, you will become an advocate because mm. you will see the beauty. Even if you are um, a spur fisher and we are open to any, any sort of uh, you know, users underwater, so we mm. are happy to have spur fishers, even though you know, they catch fish, so it seems like a contradiction. But those perfishers are subject to watching at those pictures and videos of species that are not their target, like a small nudibranch that are beautiful or other species. So the idea is that they make an experience by being on our group of experience of alternative user usage of the of the underwater realm. So it's again, again, it's um, you you contribute even if you don't you do nothing. You contribute by getting educated about uh, marine life. Yeah. So I get the feeling, Marco, that you derive a lot of joy and happiness and a sense of purpose from from creating this group. And, and just by, well, you've fallen into it, really, haven't you? You started something small and you say it's a selfish thing. <laughs> you started it and it's just grown organically. Um, can you... Describe how you feel about your life now with Viz and everything that you're doing and how important is purpose, having a purpose? That's a, a very good question. I've been thinking about that also as part of this experience of being in this podcast. And uh, I see three elements in the happy place where I'm sitting now. Uh, I've been always searching for my happiness and wondering am I happy, I'm not. And uh, I think I'm in a pretty good position right now. Reason being that um, I see happiness like uh, being about me, about uh, others, and about it. What this, I mean, I, I love diving and I go diving. And that's my kind of a selfish, uh, uh, self-rewarding uh, activity. Um, but if it was just about diving, about uh, could be swimming, could be running, could be playing golf. I wouldn't have an impact on others. Um, the, wh- wh- where I'm now, I do something I love, which is diving. 
I'm part of the community and I help other people, and that's definitely the, 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 the purpose you, you are mentioning, because you know, being self-rewarding is not probably a big purpose. The purpose is actually bringing happiness to others. And sometimes, so many times, I'm um, preparing for a dive at the dive site, and people come to me and they introduce themselves, and they, they thank me for the community, and sometimes I get a bit embarrassed, but uh, I, I, I really get so much joy by hearing from people how much value they get of the community. And this is the, let's say, the, the other type of um, benefit that reflects on my, um, on, on my happiness. And then also I'm doing something for the environment. So people that, you know, elements and life that will never say thank you, but uh, it's, um, that's a great reward to know that you're doing something for the environment. Could be because you see via the group a, a picture of a sick turtle is posted so we can recover it and bring it to the rehabilitation or uh, helping the scientists to understand what's happening in the ocean. And let's say that in, I don't know, in 50 years from now, I won't be able to dive anymore because maybe I will have a medical condition. So if my activity where I focus on my passion was uh, just diving or going golfing or swimming, that would be a disaster because I would find myself without uh, you know, having my number one activity. But knowing that I got three, three pillars, even if I won't be able to be diving, I will still be able to help other people and to run the community. I will still be able to help the environment even without diving. So that's kind of my um, insurance policy for the future. There's a lot of people in the world today who struggle to find a purpose, especially when they stop work. And we talk about retirement, and if you really look up the definition of retirement, it's putting something aside, you know, giving it up. Uh, and someone mentioned to me that it's not really retirement, it's, it's repurposing yourself, which is a really great way to think about retirement, um, because I've retired but I have completely a new purpose and I'm very, very, I'm busier than when I worked. And I think purpose is so important in life because it is what gets you up in the morning, isn't it? You, you need to have a focus in the morning, which is not just work, but uh, what's the plan for the weekend? And it's not the barbecue, it's not uh, watching the game. At least, I mean, for me, everybody is, is different ones. But for me, it's, okay, where, where I'm going diving, um, so tomorrow is Saturday, and my mind is focused on where I'm not, I've never been diving. I want to go diving where nobody goes, something different. Maybe I will find nothing, and most of the time I find nothing, but maybe there is 1% probability that I find something interesting. Don't blink. That's one of my favorite songs. Um, it's, a, it's a song sometimes I cry when I listen to, so it's about the lyrics. It's about uh, life that goes past as you blink. So I'm not going to elaborate too much because you don't want anyone to be crying at your podcast. Okay. Just enjoy it. Don't Blink by Kenny Chesney. Welcome back. You're listening to 88.7 and 90.3, your community radio station. To find out more, go to the website rnb.org.au. This is Karen. I'm in the studio today with Marco Bordieri who created a group called viz.org. It is for divers, citizen scientists, and it's been a fabulous interview. But Marco, before we finish up today, what are three takeaways today? Uh, if I look back in, to my life, um, definitely one of them is uh, that my life-changing moments came from uh, meeting other people, listening to other people, not by 
sitting watching TV or staring on the ceiling and thinking what next. That when, for example, when I moved to Australia, it's because somebody told me when I started running, because somebody told me come running. So I see a lot of importance in um, in, in winning the natural hesitancy to, you know, to leave the house in the evening, maybe after a long day at work. So I think that's uh, definitely key, uh, meeting people. And um, the second one is that uh, I had a lot of uh, childhood dreams. And um, I realized some of them did never come true. Others came true in a different shape. Because uh, when you're a child, you see your future with the eyes and with the imagination of a child. I was thinking of becoming a Navy diver and uh, sinking ships, uh, riding torpedoes <laughs> at night, <laughs> like the Italian Navy seals in the Second World War. I, I do ride a kind of a torpedo, which is my sea scooter, and um, I don't sink ship, but I, I, I find uh, stuff underwater that has a, a, a public value. Yeah, so childhood dreams uh, may not come true, but uh, I think uh, keep searching uh, in that domain. So for me, it was going underwater. It's just in a different shape, and uh, that's how I find my current uh, happy place. I say current because I never know what the future will bring. And probably the third uh, takeaway is uh, also being part of this uh, event and having the self-reflection that being part of this podcast with all these questions require. It's uh, it's a life-changing moment for me. Thank because, you. Because uh, you never stop, you never look back, you just, uh, you live in the day, you know, what's today, what's tomorrow, you never stop and uh, and um, consider it your, your your life from a different perspective, like if you were a third person. And that's uh, what happens when you have to explain your life to somebody. You have to get out of your body and, and look at the timeline of your life and explain why you did things or you didn't, didn't do other things. So this experience has definitely been one of those life-changing events. Oh, I'm touched. Thank you. It's um, a great pleasure to do this and to have people like yourself sharing very valuable stories. You, you know, the people themselves that I interview don't always think that what they're sharing adds value to others, but I'm here to assure you that it does. It does to me. Marco, if people want to get hold of you. We have a, a website, which is called uh, vis.org.au. This is where we post all our content because uh, Facebook, in, in Facebook, everything just fades in the past. So whenever we, we have something that needs to be saved and easily found, we post it on the on the website. The other option is the VIZ, uh, V-I-Z, the Facebook group, Sydney Diving Visibility Reports. That's the full name. Uh, if you are an active diver, you can post. If you're not an active diver, you know you can just sit and, uh, and enjoy the content. And then we have the Sydney Underwater Gazette which is kind of the, the most public-facing, is a public page, so it's open to anyone. You don't have to join, you can just follow. And this is where we extract the best from the group posted by other people, and we share it with the wider community. So there are three options. Thank you, Marco, for joining me today. It's an absolute pleasure to have met you, and we only met recently, and um, it's wonderful. Thank you. It's been wonderful for me as well. Cheers, everyone. Until next time. So this is it for today's program. It's time to say cheerio to the wonderful Northern Beaches community. Join me next week for another episode of Aging Fearlessly. And now for a song written by Nick Howard, especially for the listeners. This is Karen Sander. Have a fantastic week. And remember, aging is inevitable and growing old is a choice. The sun is shining bright outside There's a sparkle in your eyes
Let your heart be alive. 